Well, uh, some years ago, uh, a friend of mine told me a story about uh, De Valera, and the story pertains to a time long before De Valera became the uh, Prime Minister or Premier of Ireland, and at a time when he was considered to be uh, one of the dangerous revolutionaries by the British. And uh, the story goes that on a certain occasion, Mr. De Valera was on a street corner, uh, talking to the crowd, and uh, some English policemen came by, military or civilian, I know not, and uh, decided that uh, he was inciting to riot. <laughs> they charged him with inciting to riot, and he was brought up and, and incarcerated for quite a, quite, quite a while. And when he got out, I'm told that he went back to the very same street corner where he was arrested, found himself a soap box and climbed up on it and said, Now, as I was saying before I was interrupted... <laughs> a story told, no doubt, of many national leaders, but indicative of the impact made by de Valera on the American consciousness. They find it hard to come up with the names of contemporary Irishmen, but Dev they know. The Irish are still greeted in America as though they should conform to the prototype... A broth of a boy, be japers, a hard man with the bottle, an exponent of charm and blarney. But, of course, this is just the unthinking caricature. In fact, the Irish, like all the other immigrants, have been assimilated. And that's more than can be said for some of the indigenous population. Red Indian dancers putting on a show for the visitors in Wisconsin. After their performance, I spoke to the chief, White Eagle of the Winnebagoes. He was predictably conservative, since his business and the business of his tribe is to entertain the white man. I asked him if he felt that the Red Indians were still being exploited by the white man. To some extent they are. And some, you know, has come to understand that our culture is not a thing that can be just copied any old way or talked about because it has various teachings that, well, you might say beyond our ordinary people's understanding because this is something that's nationally or tribal beliefs that they do have. I noticed that one of the girls in your show tonight sang a protest song. Well, I guess that's a general trend of all nationalities within this country. We call this the melting pot of the world, but I don't think... Did the Winnebago Indians take any part in the protests that occurred in the last couple of years? Well, I guess we do have some that did go into those things, but not as a protester, but as to get a line on what really was at the bottom of the basic belief why these people were doing those things, our Indians as a whole. An Indian chief with equivocal views on the treatment of his people. There was nothing equivocal about an Indian girl I met in Oregon. She was one of a party of young Indians on a chartered bus which, according to the slogan painted on it, was on the road to self-determination. This group is a delegation of people that live in the Northwest uh, out in Washington State. Uh, this caravan is sponsored by Survival American Indian Association. <clears throat> the Puyallup Tribe and the Tacoma Indian Center, these people 
although they all live in that area, uh, are from many different tribes and we're on our way into Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. to meet other Native Americans from all over the country. There'll be a delegation there of Iroquois people, Sioux people, there'll be people from Oklahoma and from California. We come together with a common cause for a common issue. The United States government is celebrating 200 years of liberty and justice uh, for their citizens, the American Indians, the sovereign people of the United States. Uh, have had no liberty, have had no justice. Uh, our communities have been oppressed. Our properties and our lives have been seized by the United States government for the greater use of the, of the greater population. What do you so want the U.S. government to do for you now? At this point, we want them to recognize our treaties, to recognize our citizens, to recognize our rights, to, to liberate our resources to cease seizing our properties. We have the highest infant mortality rates, the shortest lifespans. Our people are living in economic compression. Uh, those of us that are from the Northwest have treaty rights to fish, to support ourselves. Uh, we find the attitudes of the white Americans to be racist and oppressive and cruel. The court systems are racist and oppressive. And these people seek, you know, what the American citizens came here to secure, uh, which is liberty and freedom and a right, the recognized right for an economic base. There seems to be very little hope for an economic base in places like Wounded Knee, a desolate wilderness of unemployment and near despair. The native Indians certainly do seem to have a problem. Ask the informed white man about the status of the American Indian and you get a guarded reply. I had the, the great privilege when I was a youngster of being born and reared in Yosemite, and there I went to school with many youngsters who were of Indian heritage. And uh, later I had the opportunity to work in Glacier National Park and be associated with young people from the uh, Blackfeet uh, Nation. Uh, post that, uh, many, many times fighting forest fires, I had the, and again I use the word privilege, uh, to be associated with Indians from our Southwest cultures, uh, Navajo, Hamas, uh, uh, Hopi, and others. And I guess uh, some of my feelings are that some of the most gentle, uh, um, wonderful human beings that I've met are these people. And I think anyone uh, would agree that the process of uh, Western expansion in the United States uh, was one that we certainly can't take a great deal of pride in in terms of uh, the role the Indian played or how the Indian has uh, come out. <coughs> uh, today we find uh, very frequently that the Indian uh, was placed on lands that uh, did have great value. In fact, in Oklahoma, Indians who were moved uh, a number of times uh, found themselves uh, atop a great deal of oil. Here, as you've come into the Yellowstone country when you're out in the Wind Rivers, the Arapahoes and some of those Indians are now on land that possesses great mineral wealth. But John, this was by accident. This mineral and oil wealth uh, was not known. In fact, they were being sent to poor land. Uh, exactly right, and uh, you state that very well. I guess uh, I feel comfortable in a way, or good in a way, that maybe in some ways there's a little bit of restitution there. But uh, we are we are at a time of a turmoil, and the young 
Indian people I worked with were really neither able to be a part of a traditional culture of their own or part of our culture, and they were, in my opinion, kind of caught in the middle. Uh, Do you so feel they've been badly treated by the U.S. government? You know, they claim that they have various treaties dating back many years and that these have never been honored. Well, I'd, I could only say read the treaties and uh, then look at the circumstances and draw your own conclusions. Uh, certainly uh, a treaty that was entered into in good faith, uh, I suppose, is a document just as you and I would sell a car and have a bill of sale, and we'd both have some obligations under it. What I would hope is that both the Indian and the uh, uh, the white person today would say, let's really look for just accommodation. We can't uh, retrace or undo all of that history, but let's seek ways in which there is equity for all, all concerned. But do you feel they are doing that? I think we're coming to a time when that's going to occur more. Uh, I think you uh, uh, in Ireland would look at our, our history and say that... Uh, We've seen tremendous conflict and upheaval and uh, the forces of, of the black man seeking equity. And uh, slowly, perhaps in some places, we're beginning to find more of it. Uh, not enough, not fast enough. Uh, it would be my hope that uh, in the confrontations that, we've, that we see now with, uh, with our society, within our society, with Indian people, that the confrontations would lead us eventually to the time of good conclusion and equity. That was John A. Townsley, the superintendent of Yellowstone National Park, and he emphasized to me that he was speaking in a personal capacity. Donning his official mantle, he told me something of the incredible wonders of Yellowstone. How big is it? Yellowstone is about uh, two and a quarter million acres. Uh, in this country, it would be about uh, the size of three Rhode Islands bundled into one, the state of Rhode Island. Uh, you must have an enormous stash to this, Joe. Uh... No. Uh, in the wintertime, we would probably number about 200 people working in the park. At this time of year, in July, when most of the visitors are coming, uh, I would say we probably have about 700 people working. But that includes uh, a lot of different things. For instance, we're the fire department, we're the police department. Uh, we try to help people with interpretive things and information. We also are the road department. We do almost everything that a county or city uh, government would do. You were telling me that you and a number of your staff come from very varying disciplines. Uh, that's true. Uh, uh, early, many of the men who were park rangers uh, were foresters by professional training, and still many are. But today, if you were able to walk uh, about and spend a week in Yellowstone and talk to uniformed people, You'd find engineers and people who were public health sanitarians and biologists, zoologists, business majors, English majors. Uh, you really wouldn't want to figure you knew what the person's background was before you talked to them. Your particular thing is biology. I was a biologist uh, by education and training, yes. And we were talking just before we came on air about the big problems that you have in relation to the ecology of this park? Uh, as we mentioned a moment ago, Yellowstone is very large, and with that largeness, it, it provides an opportunity for uh, an ecosystem to function almost uh, totally within itself. Of course, here we're on a very high uh, plateau country. Uh, in effect, uh, much of Yellowstone is a collapsed caldera of an ancient volcano some 30 by 40 miles across. Uh, 
so many plant and animal communities can exist here with uh, little interference from uh, from regional influences, air pollution, those kinds of things, or even from influences of man's activity. When you speak about larger animals, for instance, the uh, wolf, uh, who traveled uh, in packs and traveled over large areas, uh, it's probably not possible that he could exist in Yellowstone without occasionally going in or out. And today we think we have a few remnant, wol remnant wolves, uh, but uh, uh, very, very infrequent sightings. The grizzly bear uh, is perhaps best uh, uh, protected and ensured of survival here of any place in the in the lower contiguous 48 states in the United States. How many grizzlies would you have in the park? Have you ever done a count? Well, they're, estimation? Dif they're difficult to count, but we would assume uh, that we have uh, well above 200 bears in the park, 200 grizzly bears, and perhaps as many as 500 black bears. What well, other large animals do you have? Elk, uh, uh, number in the thousands, uh, probably in the summer there may be as many as 16 or 17,000 elk in Yellowstone. Uh, moose are abundant, uh, uh, plus or minus, maybe a thousand. Uh, deer are, are common, uh, but that would be the general range of the larger animals. There would be uh, uh, coyotes, uh, bobcats, and others. You were telling me a very interesting thing. You were saying that in your father's time, he'd shoot any uh, cats that he'd see. Well, that, that was common in around 1915. For instance, uh, the intent was to try to protect deer by shooting the mountain lion, or what you might call a cougar or a puma. Uh, today, we, would, uh, we, we are grateful if we know we have uh, mountain lions within Yellowstone as a part of the natural process, uh, part of the ecology. Alone, they're not going to keep ungulate numbers down, ungulates meaning elk and so forth, but they are part of the system. They're part of the system that should survive here and, uh, and part of a system that man needs to learn about, to know about, be sensitive to, and to respect. But it strikes me that what you're saying is that man should hold back and let nature get on with its own job. Uh, very much. Now, in Yellowstone, we'll, this year, we'll probably have two and a half million visitors, and it means that our road systems are the accommodations for people and all are going to have some disruption. Uh, in the United States today, thousands of people, young and old, are taking to the woods to hike. And they really have a significant influence on animals. For instance, if you could come back next winter and we could come through Yellowstone on a snowmobile, uh, you would find that the buffalo and the uh, elk were not really bothered by that. But if you were to go out among them on a pair of touring skis, as you would see in Scandinavia, and today much the same here, uh, that would be really bad news for them because you're moving them. And really what that animal is doing in that severe winter, and our temperatures here are 30 and 40 and 50 below zero much of the winter, that animal is trying to preserve his heat, he's trying to conserve body energy, he's getting very little to eat through the snow. And the last thing you want to do is to move him, to press him, to do those things that uh, disturb that process. So we think of man and cars and engines as being uh, the real problem, but we're entering a time when man traveling in the backcountry, whether as a hiker or as a skier, is also a concern. So man has an influence. We try to mitigate it. We try to minimize it. Conservation is, of course, a big issue in Yellowstone, and it leads to some surprising decisions. For example, they differentiate between man-made and natural fires. 
The first they put out as quickly as possible. The second they often allowed to burn on the grounds that natural fires have occurred there for millions of years and they're necessary to the balance of nature. I did think they carried their ideas on conservation rather far on their brochures. They asked visitors not to swat the mosquitoes as they were part of the life cycle. Going through the Midwest is a journey back to youth. The names of the heroes and the towns that became familiar from reading westerns materialize on the roadsides. Garretson, Sioux Falls, Cactus Flat, the Black Hills, Sundance, Deadwood. Incidentally, the only vandalism of a road sign that I saw in the whole width of America was curiously appropriate. A sign for Deadwood had six neat bullet holes drilled in it. At all the historic stops, the high school guides, with their eager young voices, are ready to fill in the background. Okay, when a miner would strike a vein of gold, uh, he'd say, I have a lead. That's why they called it lead. We're sponsored by the Lead Civic Association. Now, it's non-profit, so all proceeds above expenses are given away to charities, things like that. Now, you see that area right over there, that big split in the hill? That's the open cut, and that's where the first claim on Homestake was filed on April 9th, 1876. Now, you can see it used to be a complete hill. But when they mined over there, they didn't backfill their tunnels. They didn't fill them in properly. And about 30 years ago, it just collapsed. Lead City, Silver City, Hill City, everywhere the guides were waiting for us. In Hill City, as in so many other places, we were entertained. There was no doubting the ethnic origins of the local band. Yeah, das ist die Lichtensteiner Polka. And the band played on as we worked our way through T-bone stakes, which each weighed three pounds. And then a new sound was heard. The fifes and drums solemnly commemorated 200 years of freedom and in their farewell piece you could detect echoes of the Irish heritage. This entertainment took place at an establishment called the Shoot Rooster. A name like that simply begs a question, and Jack Gherkin was there with the answer. Well, the shoot rooster, uh, a lot of people, that's spelled C-H-U-T-E, like a livestock shoot rather than like a gun shoot. And the significance of the name, according to the cowboys, this is the wise guy who sits up on the top rail when everybody else is down inside working or trying to ride, and he's giving them all kinds of advice, and it really winds up he never does any of the work himself. He knows it all. Yeah, you bet. We have an expression at home, the, hurler, the best hurler is always on the ditch. That's just exactly what we're talking about here when we say shoot rooster, only this is cowboy talk. People with highly individualistic streaks, or as we call them in Ireland, characters, are not in short supply in the United States. While I was there, a disabled Californian was nominated for president in the current campaign. He had two main planks in his platform. One, to improve the time taken to deliver mail by using carrier pigeons exclusively, and two, to raise bus fares in order to attract a better class of customer. 
This slightly zany streak is also detectable in apparently more sober citizens. Solid men like Wilbur W. Thompson, for example. Well, it was in 1942 that I picked up the local paper, Rapid City Journal, and I read in there that there was some property to be sold for taxes. So on this uh, day, I went into the courthouse, and they, sure enough, they were having a sale. And I had checked into it to find the numbers, the right numbers of the land, so I did. And when that piece of property came up, I made a bid on it. And I thought, well, I should have made that bid higher, but I thought, well, I'll see who somebody else said. And the auctioneer kept trying to get somebody to raise it and somebody to raise it, and I sat there sweating a little heavier all the time, and finally he sold it to me. <laughs> well, is it worth anything? Uh, well, the man that had run the mine for years, one of the men was, uh, was George Coates from Hill City, run the hardware store, and him and his partner had mined there for years, I think 25 or 30 years, maybe more, and they... <laughs> They done all right, but they somehow they agreed to disagree, and one of them went to Alaska, and the other one decided he ought to get drunk, and he laid out in the alley a night or all night, I guess, and then they took him to Rapid. He only lived three or four days, and passed off. So you bought this piece of land? Yes, I did. There had been a gold mine on it. Is there any gold uh, still in it? Well, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, Mr. Coots told me, he said, we struck the best vein the morning we had our difficulties. He said that we, we had in the 25 years we'd run it. And he said, it's all there yet. And uh, so I, I never got interested at all. I, I, uh, I'm I, strictly a prairie side of a guy. I'm like a coyote. I, I like the prairie. <laughs> well, you own this gold mine. What are you going to do with it? Well, I'm going to keep it until my finish, and then there'll be something for the kids to fight legally over. <laughs> you think this is a good thing? Well, I think it's a good thing. They can do something with it in some years to come. But, you know, uh, I'm getting up the ladder a little ways, and uh, it's probably better that I don't want to give it a go of mine. Yes. Have you been made any offers for the land? Oh, yes, I have. I one guy, one guy offered what he wanted to do first is he wanted to rent it. And uh, he would give me a fourth of the take. He'd furnish all the machinery and he'd give me a fourth of the take. And I said, yes, you offer me a fourth of the take and then you steal three-fourths of my fourth and I don't know. No, no, he said, I wouldn't do that. I said, well, then you are not a miner. I said, I have known a lot of miners, but they'll all steal when they can get money. <laughs> Well, you offered hard cash, didn't you? Yes, I've been offered 25000 for it, but I didn't take it. I asked Mr. Coates about, oh, probably six, seven months before he passed away, I asked him what he would say the place was worth. And he said, Wilbur, if you sell that for less than $45,000, I think you're crazy. I said, well, why wouldn't you redeem it? He said, because when, we, when him and his partner broke up, he said, my word is worth more than that, because he said, when we broke up, we both, we shook hands, he said, and vowed we'd never go back to the mine. So and you're quite said, happy now to leave it for your children to fight Yes, over. sir. Yes, sir. I, I think it's wonderful. They can do as they're doggone pleased with it. Uh, and I, I think it's a nice plaything. I furnished the playthings when they were small, and now they got something bigger to play with. On the 4th of July, the flags flew bravely, the fireworks cascaded, the tall ships moved majestically past New York. I was in a most appropriate place, Mount Rushmore, where a nimbus of evening cloud gave smoky halos to the four presidents whose faces are carved in the mountain. 
I could understand how Lincoln and Washington and Jefferson had earned their elevation, but I couldn't help wondering what Teddy Roosevelt had done to earn canonization. The national birthday was celebrated at Rushmore with specially commissioned music. The words of the presidents in their great speeches were set to music. Phrases like inalienable rights are not the usual words used by songsmiths, but they came across with a dignity of their own. I shall constantly bear in mind that as the sword was the last resort for the preservation of our liberties, so it ought to be the first to be laid aside when those liberties are firmly established. When those liberties are firmly established. The unity of government which constitutes you one people is a main pillar in the edifice of your real independence. The basis of our political system is the right of the people to make and alter the constitutions of There's a pleasing directness in the Americans' regard for their flag and anthem. The celebrations at Mount Rushmore ended with the whole audience rising and joining with the singers in the national anthem. And there's nothing shamefaced about it. They stand with hand on heart, and they mean it when they sing of the land of the brave and the home of the free. It seems to underline the fact that they are no longer exiles from all over Europe, but real, true-born Americans. Unfortunately, the fervour of patriotism can lead to the most nauseous excesses in the line of nationalistic songs. This is one that was very popular in the Midwest while I was there. I recorded it from my car radio. It relates to Old Glory, a flag. In her own good land here she's been abused. She's been burned, dishonoured, denied, refused. And the government for which she stands is scandalised throughout the land. And she's getting thread there, and she's wearing thin, but she's in good shape for the shape she's in. Because she's been through the fire before, and I believe she can take a whole lot more. As American, they say, as fried chicken. And talking of chicken, I met the man who, 20 years ago, convinced the American people that chicken can be, as he says, finger-licking good. Colonel Carlin Saunders. Colonel, my name's John Skim from Ireland. Glad to meet you, Mr. Kim. How do you do? I thought they were shooting everybody over in Ireland. You got out of there without getting shot. Oh, there are a few of us left still. Yeah, good. How I did think. you start this enormous worldwide empire? Well, I don't know. I just, uh, I had a little restaurant myself, and I always considered chicken North America's hospitality dish. I don't care if it's king, preacher, potentate, or who comes. We give them a good chicken dinner, gave them the best American table we could afford. So I had this restaurant. And on, on the highway... Where was your restaurant? At Corbin, Kentucky, on US-25. 
And that's the main route to Florida, don't you see? And how did you know how to cook chicken? I mean, this oh, woman's work. I, no, it's not. <laughs> I've been cooking ever since I was seven years old. And what's special about your chicken? It's the seasoning and the method of cooking. You see, I got 11 different spices and herbs. When they're blended, they complement the flavor of the chicken. Colonel, you're past the first flush of youth. When do you think you might retire? Well, I don't intend to retire at all because you had no use. If you quit, you're going to rust out quicker than you'll wear out. So I'm going to keep wearing enough to keep the rust off. And I have asked the Lord for 14 more years to live. That'll finish out this century, you see. In uh, 59 more days, I'll be 86 years old. People are going to eat an awful lot of your chickens in 14 years. They sure do. I want to keep them at it if I can. The white-suited Colonel Saunders, in whose name two million chickens are slaughtered every day. To people conditioned by Starsky and Hutch on the streets of San Francisco, the police in America come as a surprise. I talk to many of them, state police, sheriffs, highway patrols, federals, and without exception they seemed remarkably mild and human. Melvin Kelly was one of them. I spoke to him in his squad car. What's your exact job? Uh, just a patrolman for the city of Buffalo, Wyoming. And uh, this is city police now, as distinct from the sheriff's office uh, and the highway police. There are a whole lot of policemen here. Yeah, we're just mainly in the city limits, but in Buffalo, we are deputized for the whole county. So you look after crime, do you? Yes, sir. And how difficult is it in a comparatively small town like Buffalo? Oh, to a small town like Buffalo, to, say, Denver, where I came from, there's a whole lot of difference. What was Denver like? Uh, there quite a bit of crime down there. Uh, Did you walk a beat? Yeah, I walked a beat down there for two years and rode a cycle in uh, traffic bureau for two years. And it was tough? It was pretty tough down there. But you reckon Buffalo is a quiet town? It's a quiet town, yeah. We have, oh, I would say, a burglary every two weeks to a month yeah. compared to probably 100 a day down in Denver. And when things happen up here, do you have a fair idea of who's behind it? Yeah, pretty well. Uh, they're mostly the same kids doing it. Yeah. Um, you're very heavily armed. You have a pistol. You have a, a pump shotgun here. Right. And you have a torch that acts as a billy at night time, yeah? Uh, well, I carry a flashlight, yeah, that's uh, made out of steel. Well, now, have you often had to use these weapons? Not in Buffalo. What about Denver? Denver, yeah. How often? Oh, well, it's hard to say. Different guys work different areas, and depending the area they work in, I would say on the amount of force that they have to use to make an arrest. Did you ever have to draw a weapon on a man? Yeah, I had to shoot one guy down in Denver. Did you kill him? No, wounded him. Did it worry you? No. Afterwards, I felt a little bad about it, but it was either him or me. You have an extraordinary business here in your uh, police car that we're sitting in. A radar gun kind right. of thing. Tell me about that. It works just like a radar on a plane or a ship. It'll send a wave out and... It Bounces will up. bounce it back, and this calibrates the speed of their car. And this is accurate? Yes, sir. And uh, you mean when you're driving along the highway, you simply aim this out the front window? Aim it out the front window, and it'll bounce back and tell you how fast they're going. And what about a car coming behind you? Same thing. Just turn it around and switch a switch so it'll read out of the mirror, and it'll say the same thing. 
And how tough are you on speed limits? I know I drive 55, but I sometimes yeah. drive to about 58. It depends. I think right now the highway patrols give them 10 miles an hour. They give them that much grace? Yes, sir. And if they're 11 miles over? They ride them. In six or seven weeks in the United States, I met two completely happy men. And that's two more than I've ever met in Ireland. One was a park ranger who was a born naturalist, and so in his element. He simply couldn't wait for tomorrow to dawn to see what it would bring. The other was a cowboy with whom I spent a pleasant day riding through the Sierra country. The temperature was in the hundreds, and we chewed tobacco to keep the saliva flowing. The smell of sage was overpowering, and Don whiled away the time by riding into the brush and flushing out rattlesnakes. That night in his ranch house, as I sat rather gingerly in an armchair, I talked to him as he played with his little daughter. Don, uh, how do you make a living? Well, just primarily with the, with the horses, and uh, I have hunting in the fall, and summertime is all uh, uh, fishing trips, long trips. We've got the hourly rides and such like that. But uh, You have a bit of land around here, haven't you? Pardon me? You have a bit of land around here. Yes, I have 2,000 acres here. We have some as uh, hay ground for the horses for the wintertime and to sell. Is 2,000 acres a small farm? Yes, it's a small ranch, uh huh. And you just keep horses, you don't run cattle on it? No, I've got a few beeves, that's all, just for our own family beef, and uh, and that's about it. But uh, And how many horses do you run? Uh, I've got 65 right now. So this year you're living rearing horses, and you break your own horses, do you? Yes, me and uh, some of my hands, and we all do. Huh? Uh, is this hard work? Yeah, it gets to be hard work. You pack them first. It's the easiest way is to pack them first. You put a lot of weight on them. It uh, teaches the horse to go around trees, for instance. You notice none of these horses run your legs into trees? Uh-huh. Well, you go around those trees. They're used to par- carrying big, heavy boxes and stuff, and if they run those into a tree, well, it'll drive them right to the ground, you know, and settles them down. In the summertime, you go away on these trips into the mountains, uh, five- and seven-day trips you were telling me about. Mm-hmm. You went with Candice Bergen recently. Yes, yes, we sure did. We had a great time. We had a great trip. We had uh, we had all the seasons, too. We had a little snow the first day we were going in. We had snow that night above us in the high mountains. They all turned white. And by the end of the trip, well, we had some 80-degree weather and hot mosquitoes, a few mosquitoes, and, and uh, fishing. We had everything. It and how many good. days were you out? We were out seven days. How would she stand up to that? Real good. She, had a, she stood it better than anyone, really. She's... Uh, She's very hardy. You were telling me she was nearly attacked by a grizzly bear. Well, I wouldn't say attacked, uh, really. She came down into camp. Uh, the grizzly was heading for camp, and he was just lured in by the by the smell of the uh, the sausage, you know, the pork sausage. And when he picked up the human scent, why, then he, uh, when he got, he got quite close before he picked up the human scent, and then he went from there, you know. He took off, and he left us. This must be a real problem for you, because... Even as a local man, you're not supposed to carry firearms when you go on these trips, when right. you're uh, in preserved areas. Right. But I suppose you bend the rules a little, do you? you yeah, I guess. You have to at times. Uh, mostly, I guess, because of safety, you know. And, and uh, we're kind of used to carrying our sidearms, you know. And, and uh, there we just put them in a little deeper, you know. You wouldn't be too happy with that, then? Pardon me? You wouldn't be too happy going into the mountains with that? No, I don't believe so. What about rattlers? Are they a problem? Not in the high country. Just down here, in the, and this is what is called a high desert here, really, with the sagebrush and rock and whatever. But uh, when you go into the high country, there, there's, no, there's no reptiles. There are a few toads is all, and frogs, and that's it. 
They don't like the cold. I think that's what it is, a short season and not... There's marshy ground, that's the only place that there is for frogs and whatever, but I think it's the altitude, too, the, the difference in the air and whatever. What about these river snakes? Do you have those around here? We met them uh, about 100 miles east of here. Oh, small water snakes? Yeah. Are they poisonous? No, they're not. Unless uh, you get, like, down in the south, they have the water moccasin, the cottonmouth, and, and such like that, the moccasins. But uh, here all we have is what's called the prairie rattler, the one that we killed here by the house last night was only about... He was about a three-footer. Poisonous? Yes. And what about the children? Do you worry for them? Well, I worry for her, yeah. She's the only littlest one. And all the rest of the people here have grown up, so we could watch her pretty close. Here in Wyoming, you've been uh, reared to horses, of course. All your life, I suppose, you've ridden. Mm -hmm. Certainly when you sit in the saddle, you look as if you have. You have no hips and you have no belly on you. <laughs> and um, I suppose... Being born to the saddle, you must have ridden rodeo at same stage, didn't you? I did some when I was younger, but I like, like I told you this morning, I'd like to say that I'd like to uh, be a little smarter than that now. You know, uh, that's a, it's a kid's game. Uh, older guys, uh, as far as rodeo itself, competing in such way, um, it's rough. It's darn rough on your bones. Your bones get more brittle as you get older. You know, but it's a it's a teenager sport, is what it is really, except for the pros. Of course, for a grown man to get a broken leg or something means that he's out of work, that he can't do his work. We keep right after it. These fishing trips and whatever, we've got guys. I have one man that works for me. He got uh, hurt in Vietnam. He got his leg blown clean off in Vietnam. He's got a wooden leg all the way from his hip. And he rides, he packs, he fishes, he does everything. He does most of his things a horseback. You know, he'll go fishing a horseback. And uh, him and old Poker Joe, you know, he's got a special horse. It's just... Works out real well with that bro with that wooden leg, you know. Tell me about the fishing around here. Fishing is is tremendous. It's out of this world. It's uh, unbelievable, actually, because uh, um, you can go back into this high country and you can be the only person there for weeks on end and never see another soul. And these trout are uh, they're coming from the low. They're coming up. They're moving up on their spawn, you know. And uh, time they get to the Time they get en route is where we're catching them, and, and it takes them months for their spawn, of course. And if you're the only person there, we've been just just sporting with them, driving them, driving hundreds and hundreds of fish right in the, riding along with their saddle horse in these small streams, and driving them up these waterfalls and just watching just just uh, hundreds of fish just over the tops of each other, just climbing these waterfalls, you know. And and, uh, and we've got pictures, you know, of the fishing and whatever. But uh, it's it, it is it's out of this world. Yours is the complete outdoor life. Would you change it for any other? No, I would not. 